Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Colleen Ernstrom. She is the co-author of The End the Insomnia Struggle. Colleen is a licensed clinical psychologist with a specialty practice in acceptance and commitment therapy. Colleen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, So um, what inspired you to write a book on insomnia? Uh, Well, my colleague and I have been working together for many years on um, helping people with insomnia, and we had been presenting at conferences to help other clinicians learn the best skills, and the um, publishing company approached us and really liked our ideas and asked us to put it in book form, which was a real honor and and an arduous task. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, for sure. I think getting all that information together is it, it is hard, but also really important. There actually aren't a lot of books on the insomnia. I've tried to have, you know, a really thorough show for a long time. And I'm surprised because I think that it's a really important part of anybody's um, health journey or their journey in general. And it affects a lot of people. I think your book says one in three people experience insomnia and one in 10 say it's debilitating which is really overwhelming, and that's a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. We felt the same way. We were surprised there weren't more books out. And the good news is in the last few weeks, last few years, more books have come out, which is great. Well, it gives people more option to help themselves because, yeah. you know, aside from, you know, doing plans like yours, I think people's options are medication, which either don't work for people or they have side effects or, you know, it's just not something that they want and they want to, you know, change their bodies overall so they're not reliant on something like that. And the options are pretty sparse at this time. Yeah. So can you just explain to us what insomnia is? Sure. So insomnia is when there is a chronic pattern where um, somebody struggles um, with any or all of the following, trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep. So you might wake up um, multiple times during the night, waking up too early in the morning before you're ready to get up, um, not feeling that you have um, good focus during the day, so feeling some daytime fogginess or sleepiness. Um, so any of or all of those, um, when given adequate opportunities. So we're not talking about people who um, aren't, aren't able to give their body the opportunity to sleep. These are the people who are trying to sleep, but they're unable to. Um, and um, they're really feeling very frustrated about that. Um, the other piece is that, that by definition, these um, problems need to be happening uh, more days than not for about 30 days. So some people can have a couple of days of poor sleep. That's pretty normative. But when it becomes a long-term pattern, then we use the label of insomnia. So um, does this just start overnight for a lot of people or is this something that some people just have, uh, you know, genetically or what kind of happens when people get to this point? 
Yeah, the theme, the theory is, is that it's a combination of both, that some people have wiring where they are more robust sleepers and others are going to be more sensitive to environmental changes and to stressors in their lives. For a lot of people, they can point to the onset, which is usually um, something challenging or stressful in their lives, and it doesn't always have to be a negative stressor. Sometimes something like getting a job promotion where you are excited about it, but it's still a change and a stressor can um, cause some disruption in sleep. Um, for a lot of people, there is a very short-term disruption in sleep, and then as they manage the change or the transition, then their bodies return to um, the normal stages of sleep, but for some people, um, it, they get stuck in these patterns that then are really hard to get out of. Which I think most people have been there at some point, you know, either just, you know, a couple sleepless nights or or a pattern that developed over time. Um, you know, I've definitely experienced that in, in my past. And, you know, really, it, it is quite stressful to to be in that situation where you know you need to sleep because you have to do something tomorrow and you're not falling asleep. Do you find that sometimes people are, are creating that pattern just because of the anxiety that they're experiencing about not sleeping? Yes, that that is exactly what we see is that our intuitive desire to get to sleep and to get to sleep as quickly as possible actually ends up promoting um, anxious thoughts and certain behaviors that are um, problematic to the to the um, cycle of sleep. So that's exactly right, is, is that we so very much want to sleep. And we are wired to go for short-term solutions. Um, and so we're really working very hard to try to, you know, figure out how to get to sleep. But that can end up backfiring over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all so- know the more that we want to sleep, the harder. The more we want to sleep and we can't sleep, the more anxiety-provoking that is and the, how that ends up getting in the way of sleep. Yeah, I definitely have have experienced that where you're like, hey, I'm going to go to bed. And then you just get anxious right away about not being able to sleep because it's become a pattern. And then you're not sleeping because you're anxious about not sleeping, um, which is a vicious cycle just in itself. Yeah, and some people end up then feeling anxious, you know, even in the early evening, thinking about, you know, going to sleep and whether or not they're going to be able to. Mm-hmm. So what would a normal sleep pattern look like? What should we be trying to achieve? Well, that is a really great question and, and at the heart of what we try to talk about at the very beginning of the book because um, we really are um, advocating for people to move away from um, this natural tendency to want to sort of fix the sleep and more towards promoting normal sleep. And normal sleep has variation, just like our appetite. We aren't always hungry in the same way every single day. And so that's really important to know that there's natural variations in sleep. Um, We expect that um, it's going to take about 15 to 30 minutes for an average person to fall asleep. So that's another piece to understand. Sometimes people think that if they're not falling asleep right away, that there's something wrong and there's actually, you know, a little bit of a transition stage that is required. By definition, people that fall asleep as soon as their head hits the pillow are um, sleep-deprived, although we all know robust sleepers (laughs) that can do that. But it's natural to have a transition between your wake stage and then your sleep stage. And then normal sleep, it's it's a myth that everybody needs eight hours. There's actually quite a bit of variability. Some people do very well with six. Some people need nine hours. So 
normal sleep has a lot more fluctuation, I think, than a lot of people recognize. Um, we think of normal sleep as sort of a more of a predictable pattern where you might have some variations from night to night, but in general, you're going to bed and getting up around the same time every day. So how can we tell if the amount of sleep that we're getting is the right amount? Like, let's say I slept through the night, but I only got yeah. six hours. How would, and then my alarm went off. How would I know that was the right thing for me? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a lot of the times we ask people to pay attention to what their sleep cycles are like when they are on vacation, because when you're on vacation, you're away from your stressors and oftentimes are not setting the alarm. Um, and that helps us to gauge it. Another way to gauge it is um, how well you feel like you're functioning during the day. If you feel like you've got a lot of sleepiness or a lot of fatigue versus feeling like you can focus and concentrate as well as you need to. Um, our bodies are actually incredibly resilient in terms of if we have a one-off night, um, uh, the body can kind of compensate for it and, and really tolerate it. Where we end up getting into trouble is when we have these patterns of insomnia where every night we're getting um, less than we feel we need. And again, the, the gauge is really how well you're able to function. Well, and so now there is a difference between not getting enough sleep and and being ill. There are a lot of people who have illnesses that lead to fatigue. So is there a way that they can tell the difference between that? Yeah, that's another fabulous question because fatigue and sleepiness are really not the same thing. And we find this with people that have chronic pain, their bodies need to rest quite a bit during the day. Um, And so it becomes kind of complicated, you know, is it okay for people to doze or nap during the day? Um, And so um, I think it's really important to um, really trust um, your own intuition um, and not expect that everybody's going to be the same. Um, But the difference is that fatigue is a feeling um, in your body where um, the body kind of hurts and and feels like it's not recovering in a way that you want to, where sleepiness is literally your ability to fall asleep. So if if we put you in a dark room or we put you in as a passenger in the car and you know that you would immediately fall asleep, we refer to that as sleepiness. But fatigue is is more of an achiness in the body, but you wouldn't necessarily fall asleep. And for people with chronic pain, being able to really um, learn the subtle difference between the two can help them to know when to rest and when to sleep. And oftentimes, what we'll encourage people to do if they're really feeling like the resting during the day is getting in the way of sleep during the night is to um, try to rest in a chair versus laying down so that the body can start to differentiate between um, sort of resting versus sleeping. Well, you know, I I think a really good example, when I was chronically ill with uh, chronic Lyme over 10 years ago, I I got a lot of sleep at night, but I would complain about being tired during the day and everybody would just say, well, we'll go to bed earlier. And I'm like, it's a different kind of tired. And and I knew the difference. I could differentiate between how I was dragging through the day and how I was just needed to not be doing what I was doing and the need to go to bed. And those were definitely really different feelings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's complicated because now there is research that's showing that getting too much sleep can actually be as disruptive as getting too little sleep. So now you're left trying to figure out, like, I do need additional support so that my body can get strong and strengthen the immune system. But we also have to be careful that if we give 
too much sleep, then the body ends up, um, you know, really struggling with that as well. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a very tricky balance and a very fine line. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I wonder, um, are you dealing a lot with people as well who just don't want to go to bed, whether they just feel better at night, so they want to stay up late and they're kind of creating their own problem, or they just um, are afraid to go to bed? Is that something that happens a lot? Yeah, yeah, both of those are really um, um, sort of patterns that we see on a very regular basis. Um, I think that um, in our society, in our world, there's a lot of pressure to achieve, and a lot of people find that at night after everybody else has gone to bed, that becomes their time, whether they're, you know, doing more tasks or whether it's the first time that they've stopped doing tasks all day. And so I think um, for a lot of people when they're choosing between getting things done and self-care, the first thing to go is sleep. And so I think that, um, you know, that is truly a challenge is figuring out a way to remember that sleep actually increases our productivity. There's a lot of studies that shows that that helps us with our memory and our cognitions and our, you know, our immune system to keep us healthy. But in, you know, it's really hard to let that go because it feels like that extra time is, is really important. And I think you're, you know, spot on about people who also, um, you know, sleep requires us to have a certain level of trust and safety that it's okay to shut it down and to put ourselves in what can feel like a pretty vulnerable state. You know, we're not paying attention to the things around us. We're, we're trusting that the world is going to be okay. And those are also definitely contributing factors to um, how people can end up get, getting into um, a cycle or a struggle with insomnia because it doesn't start out that way. But if we keep repeating that night after night, then the body learns, oh, this is our new pattern. Uh, Yeah, which I think is really common. I, I, you know, when I was in school, um, you know, staying up late to study, I I did it first, I actually realized I couldn't study very well if I stayed up because then I was tired. Um, You know, which I think goes to the studies you're referencing of how we actually are more productive if we get better sleep. But I did try to, you know, pull those late night study sessions. And, and I could see how somebody would, you know, doing something like that would eventually create that pattern of I'm going to stay up late because this is um, something they've done for a long time. Yeah, and sometimes it can be, you know, a badge of honor. Look how how hard I'm working. And we really want to convince people and remind them that actually you're going to be working more efficiently and more optimally if you give the body the rest that it needs. Mm-hmm. But then it's frustrating because if you have insomnia and you say, okay, I will give it adequate opportunity, and then you feel very <laughs> hopeless <laughs> and frustrated when your body then has a hard time shifting into the sleep cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Colleen Ernstrom, and we're discussing her book, End the Insomnia Struggle. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson, breast cancer survivor and advocate. 
She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Riss. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. My co-host Oliver is a 7-pound chihuahua cross, and he sits through all my shows with great puppy patients. He was super happy when I came home with Carbona Pet Stain and Odor Remover, which is an oxy-powered formula with active foam technology, and it is engineered to permanently remove pet stains and odor. Carbona is a household brand. They've turned their decades of cleaning experience into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. Although he tries his best, Oliver sometimes does have accidents. I pulled out the Carbona Pet Cleaner, and voila, we were stain-free and clean. It was easy to use, pet-safe, and hassle-free. The built-in 2-in-1 brush top tackles stain at the surface and deep in the carpet fibers. It is now my other best friend. Use code FTTC at Carbona.com to save 20%. Happy cleaning! 
Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Colleen Ernstrom. We're discussing the book she co-authored, End the Insomnia Struggle. So, Colleen, in your in your book, before you even get to, you know, how to work on your insomnia, you have people do a sleep log. What is that? Um, that is a really important piece. Assessment is key to, um, you know, figuring out the best program for um, kind of helping you get out of the insomnia struggle. And so um, the sleep log is um, a nice way to capture all the necessary information. So um, people log up, and again, it's approximations. You don't have to um, stare at the clock or get too specific about it, but on average, you know, how long it takes you to fall asleep, what time you're falling asleep, how many awakenings, and what that does is it generates a nice scientific um, overview of where your struggles are, and that really then influences the type of program that um, is going to be most effective for you. Because even though there's a general program with very um, specific parts, there's some individuality in there that we want to attend to. Um, The nice pieces is that these days there's a lot of apps where um, you can punch in this information and it does all the math for you. So our our handwritten sleep log is still lovely, but it's nice to know that there are other options as well. Well, it's nice to have something do the work for you, especially if you're tired. <laughs> then you don't have to sit there and try yeah. to figure it out. Um, so what kind of yeah. things are are you looking for in the sleep log? Um, We are looking for the average amount of time um, that people are struggling, whether it's the amount of time it takes them to fall asleep or the amount of time that they're awakening during the night or um, how early they um, wake up in the morning before they would like to because the goal of um, these behavioral and cognitive behavioral programs are to reduce that amount of time. And um, CBTI typically is able to um, cut that in half. So if somebody is typically, you know, taking an hour to fall asleep and they um, work on the program, that can tip, we can typically cut that in half. And so it falls back into that normative range of taking about a half an hour. The other piece that we're looking for is um, something called sleep efficiency. And sleep efficiency is the amount of time that the body is actually sleeping um, divided by the amount of time in bed. So if you're in bed for 10 hours and you're asleep for six hours out of that 10, then your sleep efficiency is 60%. And one of the things that we... Um, strive for through this program is building up sleep efficiency where we want to see it at around 90 to 95 percent. And most people, when they're struggling with insomnia, the efficiency is far lower than that. So um, there I have a few questions that came out of that, but one of them I'm wondering if by doing this sleep log, um, it helps people when they're at the end of their program or in the middle somewhere to realize that they have helped themselves. I find people forget where they came from. And and so if they get, let's say they're sleepy five hours and they get suddenly six after doing a bunch of work, um, they might not notice. Is that something that you found as well? Yes, absolutely. And that's a key part that we 
um, spend a lot of time in the book um, reminding people about is is that the um, the measurement should be the information and the level of um, effectiveness rather than how you're feeling because we do forget our brain is quite fallible and we really encourage people to fill out the sleep log every single day because if you even go two or three days then how you slept that night really colors your assumptions about the nights before that. Um, so you've got a, a few programs that you talk about and then you talk about how to make them, you know, tailored to you. Um, your first one is stimulus control therapy. What is that? So stimulus control therapy is a behavioral protocol. It was one of the very first ones that was introduced when people started looking at non-pharmacological inventions, interventions, so ways to help people through their behaviors. And it was really driven by um, the theory that when we spend a lot of time in bed not sleeping, that we establish a relationship with the bed that's really activating and um the opposite of what we need for sleep. So the name itself, self, stimulus control, is a is a behavioral term, a behavioral science term. Um, and the intention of the program is really to reduce the um, anxiety and activation that we associate with our bed and with bedtime, and to build up our associations of bed and bedtime with a sense of sleepiness and a sense of success. Um, so when we're uh, working on this, what is the first thing that you do? So stimulus control um, has a, a couple of steps. And the first thing that you would do is establish a wake time um, that you're willing to get up at um, roughly the same amount of time seven days a week. And that is a really important piece because it anchors um, our routine and our circadian rhythm that this is the time that we start our day. Um, and that's also really important because what we're trying to do is really train the brain that this is the time when we sleep and this is the time when we are awake. And when we are asleep, we're going to try to make that be as um high quality as possible. So you establish a wake time, um, roughly the same time every day. And then from there, what you do is um, you only go to bed when you feel sleepy. And that can be a little complicated because um, if you're sitting in front of the TV watching your favorite show, your brain is probably going to tell you, I'm not sleepy, even if it's bedtime and your body is pretty sleepy. So what we want to do is establish the quiet, the dark, as if you were going to go to sleep before you kind of check in and think, am I or am I not sleepy? Um, and then we um, ask you to not go to bed and, unless you feel sleepy. Um, if you feel sleepy and it's your bedtime, then you get into bed and you give yourself approximately 15 to 20 minutes to try to fall asleep. That's an average. There's no need to watch the clock. It's just a general sense. If after the 15 to 20 minutes you are still awake, then you get out of bed and you leave the bed and the intention of that is to keep those feelings of frustration away from the association with the bed and you go and you find someplace else to be and this is this is a very important piece in a place where a lot of people end up um, making um, accidentally making some errors is that you want to do something that's really boring in the semi-dark and here's why if you go and do something fun like watch your favorite television show or pick up a really good book then the brain gets the message this is the time when I'm supposed to be awake because this is really enjoyable and that actually reinforces the opposite of what we want we're trying to reinforce 
this is the time when you sleep. So you go to some place in your house that's prearranged, whether it's a chair, a couch, or a corner of your bedroom, and you want to do something in semi-darkness, again, to promote the um, onset and readiness for sleep. One of my um, favorite examples of what you could do is um, folding laundry because folding laundry is something you can do in the semi-dark and it's very repetitive and rhythmic and hopefully not too exciting. Um, and you don't actually have to do laundry. You could take clothes out of your drawer if you need to. And you give yourself about 15 or 20 minutes of this um, boring task in the dark, and then if you start to feel sleepy again, then you return to bed. And then you keep repeating this. If you haven't gone to sleep within 15 to 20 minutes, then you keep getting out of bed until you are able to fall asleep. And then very important, you get up at the time that you establish the next morning. And during the stimulus control plan, we do ask you to abstain from naps because we're really training the brain to um, sleep during this very specific amount of time. And we're also training the brain to associate the bed only with those experiences of sleepiness. So um, would just, if, if you wake up and let's say you fall asleep easily, but you wake up a lot and then you're staying awake, would you follow those same rules? Would you get out of bed or do you stay in bed? Yes, if you're running the stimulus control program, whether or no, whatever it is in terms of falling asleep, you would still follow that same protocol because the intention of the protocol, and you can you can imagine if if you haven't done this, and one of the things that you know we did when we were first learning this protocol is we did all of the interventions because we thought if we're going to ask people to do this, like if it's a cold night, you know, who wants to get out of bed? That's hard mm-hmm. work. We don't, you know, and so we thought we better do this too. So I did all of these and it's not an easy experience. And you can imagine that what happens is that after a couple of nights of this, you're pretty darn tired. And what that is the value of that, even though there's um, some short-term discomfort up front is that you're building up your sleep drive. You're strengthening, you know, your body's desire for sleep so that there, it's going to be easier to fall asleep and stay asleep. So anytime you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, the stimulus control program is, is super effective because it's really compressing that sleep and it's also training your brain this is when I sleep. So even if you fell asleep, if you woke up and you were doing that same thing, you would get out of bed and go do something until you felt sleepy. So um, when we're when we're starting this program, you say people have to pick a time they're waking up and most people are probably going to have to get up early for work even and then you're asking them to do it all week. So even on the weekends, I'm guessing there's no sleeping in. But if you have problems with sleep, you're not getting a lot, especially in the beginning. So what can you do? Like, I, I mean, when I had issues, I didn't hear my alarm clock at all. So do you have any tips for people of how to get themselves out of bed on time? <laughs> Yeah, yes. And it's such an important question because, you know, we are um, living our lives largely based on what those expectations are in terms of getting to work or getting to school. And I think a really important key piece is, is that we really don't want to make big drastic changes. So if you've been, you know, sleeping in on the weekends till noon, we don't want you to suddenly be getting up at 6 a.m. because that's really aversive and it's too much for the body. The body doesn't like drastic change and it tends to really push back against that. So anytime you're doing um, changes like that, you want to go really slow. So if you've been getting up during the week at nine and now 
school is starting and you've got to start getting up at 7, what we really encourage people to do is to start a little bit sooner than they need to and back it up really slowly. Back it up by 15 minutes um, at a time if possible because the slower you go with making change to the body, the um, less distressful it is and the more sustainable it is. So it's really important, if at all possible, to go as, as slowly as you can. That's not always possible. Sometimes it's go time and then and um, we, um, then the other piece of advice is that safety first, always safety first. Um, and if this is um, this type of a program would put you at risk if you've got a commute and you're worried about, you know, driving your car, then we dilute it and we slow it down a little bit because we never want to put somebody in a position where they don't feel like they're doing it safely. Um, mm-hmm. So those are really key pieces um, in kind of developing that. And sometimes I work with people and they say, you know, okay, here's my program, but I'm not going to do that until my winter break or until I have, you know, a long holiday weekend because I know that um, that's too much for me right now. So I think um, really being very... Um, patient about when and how to initiate that will actually pay dividends in the long run in terms of um, kind of navigating, you know, sort of how much change you're asking of your body. Um, The other question, how to get up in the morning, is one that a lot of researchers have um, studied because there's something called sleep inertia, which is exactly what it sounds like. There are certain... um, you know, sort of constitutions where people really struggle to shift between what's going on in the brain and the body in terms of brainwave activity and and muscle tone and and heart respiration and all of that between being asleep and being awake. And it's really hard to transition. And, And this is when you feel like I'm up and I'm moving around, but I feel like I'm walking through water and I don't feel totally awake. Um, and so there's some really interesting research on that. The um, current thought on how to handle that best is actually um, not really what people <laughs> want to hear, um, but it's this idea of um, it's actually easier to get through that inertia if you resist the urge to hit the snooze button and that you treat your alarm almost as though it's like a Band-Aid ripping off like they ask they encourage people that when the alarm goes off, you get up and stand up as quickly as possible to help with that transition. And that usually it's pretty brutal for about five minutes. And then you're on the other side in a more effective way than if, you know, you're taking an hour to wake up. But that's hard. Yeah, it's hard, especially in the winter where I am. Um, I think you're in the mountains as well. It's pretty cold in the winter. It's hard to get out of bed. You're toasty and warm, and yeah. you want me to just jump out of bed into the cold air. Yeah. Um, you know, I was yeah. just thinking of that as is difficult, but um, I can see how that would wake you up <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and it is very effective because I really struggled with that inertia, and I started doing that, and, and it, it startled my husband for quite quite a while when I would like leap out of bed as though some alarm had gone (laughs) off. But it it really shifted the way my body transitioned into a wake cycle. So it is um, something that I can say with confidence is, is a very effective intervention. So having done that for a while, do you now just wake up when your alarm goes off? And so you've trained your body to wake up and you don't have to be so dramatic anymore? 
Yes, I I have a fairly I don't have a ton of sleep problems, but I have a fairly sensitive um, biorhythm, and it's interesting because my alarm is not when my body would naturally wake up, but I do. I wake up about two minutes before the alarm goes off, and um, and that's only because I've been doing it for a number of years, and it doesn't feel. Um, as restorative as when I'm on vacation and I sleep a little bit later, but the body is, you know, it's, it's trained up and there's something really beneficial about, um, you know, its ability to, to navigate what is being asked of it. Um, well, that's great. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Colleen Ernstrom and she is the co-author of In the Insomnia Struggle. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson, breast cancer survivor and advocate. She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You 
are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Colleen Ernstrom, and we're discussing her book, In the Insomnia Struggle. So, Colleen, you have, um, we talked about the stimulus control therapy, but you also have a program called Sleep Restriction Therapy. What is that one? Yeah, so this is the um, the second of the behavioral components. And just to give the context, um, these two programs are under the um, umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, also known as CBTI. And so these are the interventions that have the most research in terms of them being the most effective in helping people with insomnia. And they're the most effective because no matter what ends up getting you into a insomnia loop, um, we've got to use behavioral protocols to help your physiology get recalibrated um, into a very uh, consistent wake and sleep cycle. So the body knows how to do it. And then when we get out of sync, these are these behavioral protocols that help your body get back into sync and recalibrate with um, helpful and optimal sleep. So sleep restriction would really be better um, called time in bed restriction because it's really about your opportunity to sleep. And we talked earlier with the sleep log that we're looking at um, sleep efficiency, which is this quality of sleep in terms of how many hours you're in bed um, versus how many of those hours you're actually asleep. And what we um, aim for optimally is that we are asleep 90 to 95% of the time that we are in bed. And the reason that this is so important is because this is one of the top ways that we try to help ourselves with sleep, but we accidentally really um, end up getting in the way. And that is, is if you're not sleeping, then there's this very intuitive um, urge to give yourself more time to sleep. I'll go to bed early. I'll stay in bed a little later. I'll take, you know, more time on the weekends. And even though that sounds like it would give your body a chance to catch up, that actually ends up dysregulating the body over time. Because what the body does is the body takes whatever you give it. So if you normally sleep for eight hours and then you're starting to have some sleep problems and you start giving your body consistently 10 hours, then the body starts thinking, oh, now I have 10 hours to do the job of eight hours. And it starts to try to fill the eight hours of sleep in the 10 hours. And it starts to end up um, stretching that sleep, which can lead to fragmented sleep and trouble falling asleep. So sleep restriction therapy is designed to re- um, compress the sleep and, and really get, say, wait, we don't want to give it 10 hours. We want to give it eight hours. So the way the program works is that you um, look at your sleep log and you find your average sleep efficiency. And let's say your average sleep efficiency, let's say you've been in bed for 10 hours. You've been sleeping for about seven and a half. So your sleep efficiency is 75%. Then we take that um, amount of time that you're actually sleeping, which would be the seven and a half hours. And that's 
the amount of time that you restrict in terms of your ability to sleep. And one of the things that you want to know about sleep restriction program programs is that you never restrict below um, five and a half hours. So even if you're only sleeping four hours, you're still going to give your body five and a half because it's just not safe and healthy to only give yourself that amount of time. So we never go below five and a half to six hours. The other caveat to this is if you have um, a family history or a personal diagnosis of bipolar disorder, you just want to make sure that you consult with your physician around this because um, people with um, that mood disorder, if you restrict um, their opportunity for sleep, they're at a little bit of a risk um, for um, impacting their mood disorder. It does not mean that you can't do it. My colleague, who's the co-author of the book, runs a bipolar clinic and does this intervention very successfully with people um, who have mood disorders. You just want to take that into consideration. Um, and then it's exactly what it sounds like. You establish your wake time. That's always a very important piece because that's really anchoring that circadian rhythm. This is my sleep time. This is my wake time. And then you back it up seven and a half hours and um, you don't go to bed until that bedtime, the seven and a half hours before that Um and then you get up at the same time every day. And um, during this program, we also ask people to abstain from napping because we're really um, training the brain um, and trying to strengthen the, the time um, when they're sleeping. Once you um, reach 90 to 95% efficiency during that seven and a half hours, if that's enough sleep, then you keep to that schedule. But if you're somebody who needs eight or nine hours of sleep, then you back up um, and you give yourself another 15 minutes um, to um, increase that time in bed. And then you use that amount of time until you hit your sleep efficiency of 90 to 95%. And then you keep backing up how much time until you reach your ideal amount. So when somebody's doing all of this, I mean, it, it makes sense in theory, but um, not everybody has a very stable life where they are going to go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time. They could have shift work or they yeah. can travel to a different time zone. So what do we do in those special circumstances so that we can keep our body learning that it's supposed to do something? Yeah, that is a, a, such a fabulous question because it really um, is important for us to keep um, a focus on the things that we care about, right? Like we don't want to make sleep more important than going out on a weekend to see our friends. And so having some flexibility around that is really key. Um, and I think um, being able to think about willingness as a flexibility tool. So a willingness to modify the plan if you've got some travel or if you've got some big events coming up, um, it is perfectly reasonable to modify according to the um, things around you. Um, how much that will impact you has a lot to do with um, your own genetics. So, you know, some people can travel through time zones or the time change happens and it's a blip. Their body doesn't respond at all. For other people, they're more sensitive to it. And so just knowing your own body and knowing how flexible you're going to need to be in terms of rebounding from that is um, really the key piece. But I think it's so important to remember to, um, you know, sleep to live rather than to live to sleep. 
Mm, that's uh, a pretty important way to put it as well. I remember yeah. once reading a, a blog about a woman who was um, always putting her kids to bed at the same time, even if it was, let's say, Thanksgiving, which we just had in Canada. She would leave early to put her kids to bed at seven. Um, and, and, you know, I like the, the willingness and the flexibility because we do still have to live our lives, even though we also need to have, you know, proper sleep and to retrain our bodies. And, um, you know, we have to have room for other things like travel and work and, you know, a different circumstance in our life on that certain day. Yeah, yeah. We talk a lot about paying attention to your values and letting your choices be driven by, you know, this balance between the things that we care about and also promoting a fairly regular pattern. And we talk a lot about when you engage in a program like this, to think of it exactly like that, like a program, to dedicate a couple of months to it. And then what we do, just like you would if you were, um, you know, doing a, a detox diet, is is that then you reintroduce pieces of um, anything that you might miss. So you might miss you know, staying up later, you might miss your weekend nap. And then when you add those back in, if your body calibrates and, and navigates them accordingly, then you keep them. And if they don't, then you have the reinforcement that your sleep is better without them. And it doesn't feel so much like a deprivation because you're mm-hmm. sleeping better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is the important part. If you nap during the day and you don't sleep, you know, you're not going to want to have that nap again once you see that pattern. Yeah, and and with that said, I've met people who have had debilitating insomnia for 20 years, and when we ask them to do some of these pieces of the program, it's really difficult to do, even though there's this idea that it's going to be beneficial. And so we really try to be very compassionate and very kind and meet people where they are. It is way more effective to take a smaller step with full willingness than it is to ask yourself to do an entire program when you're feeling ambivalent about it. So oftentimes mm-hmm. when people are saying, you know, I'm not ready to do a sleep restriction program, I'm not ready to do stimulus control, then we might move into the realm of working with their anxious thoughts, working with their um, belief system around, um, you know, sort of how activating it is when they don't get sleep. And that's another great area that can be very supportive. And it, it just doesn't work to force it. People have to feel really willing and able. And, and it's better to dilute a program and go slower and take longer to get the results than it is to force somebody into a program and then have them not feel like they can tolerate it and then they are frustrated and then usually Mm -hmm. the sleep is worse instead of better. Yeah, for sure. Now, a lot of people talk about the term sleep hygiene, um, which is a little, um, you know, you have this program set in place, but are there other things that we should be doing to our bedroom that, that could help us have a better sleep? Yes. Um, you know, sleep hygiene is um, very important. I think the best way to understand the role in um, sleep hygiene when you have an insomnia problem is that sleep hygiene is a lot like oral hygiene. So if you're a good flosser and you use fluoride and you brush your teeth every day, that's um, great for promoting healthy oral hygiene. 
You can, however, do everything right, be flossing using fluoride and still get a cavity, which is um, oftentimes as much about your genetics as it is about whether you're eating too much candy. And so when you go to the dentist, um, you would not expect your dentist to say, oh, stop flossing. That's not working. You're still going to keep doing that. But you also wouldn't expect your dentist to try to floss away the cavity. They're going to do a different intervention to take care of the cavity. And insomnia is like that. We can be doing sleep hygiene and have a dark, quiet, cool environment and, you know, really blocking the blue light at night and watching our caffeine and alcohol intake, and we can still get stuck in an insomnia spiral. And in that case, we still want to keep up the sleep hygiene, but we also want to add in these cognitive behavioral tools in addition to, because it's just like the cavity, you now have a separate challenge that needs a a separate intervention. Um, And it's interesting because people who have insomnia tend to, on average, have um, poor sleep hygiene. And the theory is is that because it's so anxiety-provoking um, to have insomnia that we're driven to um, kind of go for that quick fix. Um, so I think with people with insomnia, we want to be really kind and gentle, but we want to really say, but I know you think you do, but let's make sure that you have a nice wind-down routine. I think that's the biggest one that I hear people miss out on. People are pretty good about having a dark, quiet environment as much as they can, but a lot of people will work and then close their computer, and then get into bed. And that can be really challenging. We really want to have a transition period, even if it's only 15 minutes. They, they ask for a little bit longer, but some people don't have extra time. But really transitioning, this is my wake time, and now I'm transitioning and preparing my brain for sleep is, is really effective. And I think when people miss that, then what's happening is, is that's happening when they're in bed, and then they're frustrated because they're expecting to fall asleep. Right. So if you're giving yourself 15 minutes to fall asleep, but you need the 15 minutes to wind down from what you've just done, like working, um, you're going to take half an hour and then you're going to get up at the 20 minute mark and think, oh, I didn't fall asleep, as opposed to letting yourself wind down and then going to bed and then falling asleep when you've your body has kind of chilled out from the whatever you were doing. Yeah, yep. And I think we've done a much better job of limiting the blue light from our screens at night. I think people are really cognizant of turning on those night modes and, you know, really turning down as much as they can those bright lights. Um, but I think if you really are feeling pretty stuck and pretty motivated, um, moving away, really turning those screens off and listening to a book on tape or listening to the radio or um, doing something else can, can be pretty powerful. It's not just about falling asleep, but that those bright screens are also related to staying asleep. Yeah, for sure. Now, if somebody has um, wants more information about you or your book, um, how can they find it? Um, well, I think usually email is probably the best way if they want to contact us directly. Um, New Harbinger, you know, is the publisher of the book, and they've got um, nice information about it. You can find us on all the major pages like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, I have a website where my email is listed. That's um, just information about myself and my colleagues. And if you just put my name in, um, it usually pops up. Um, It's impactpsychcolorado.com. And uh, 
I'm I'm pretty comfortable with having my <laughs> email out there, and I, I usually try to email people back. Um, I get all sorts of um, interesting and fabulous questions, and I clearly love to talk about sleep, so I'm happy to respond to people. <laughs> Well, well, perfect. Thank you so much for for sharing this information with us today. Well, thank you so much. I love um, anything we can do to get the word out that that people have a lot more. Um... Oh, um, so we seem to have lost her, but that was uh, perfect timing. Um, uh, we were talking today with Colleen Ernstrom, and we were discussing the book she co-authored, End the Insomnia Struggle. If you want more information about my story and what I went to to get uh, back to health, you can find that on my website at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And thank you so much for listening. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 